It's been a sad week for the British members of our church as we mourn for Queen Elizabeth II, the only monarch we've ever known. Her death means, as we heard in Zach's prayers, that Prince Charles has now become King Charles III. Prince William is now first in line to the throne, and his son, nine-year-old Prince George, is now second in line to the British throne. Strangely enough, Prince George was already on my mind in connection with today's Bible passage before the reports came in of the Queen's rapid decline and her death. Prince George was in my thoughts as an example of someone receiving information about himself that is too grand to process, too much to process all at once. And that's what has just happened to us as we listen to Ephesians 1 verses 1 through 14. There must have been a time, probably some years ago, when Prince William sat George down and told him, someday, George, you will be king. Knowing small boys and the way they think, it seems likely that George found it hard to process that information properly. It wouldn't surprise me if when Prince William said, George, someday you'll be king, George thought to himself, well, that's good, but what I really want is to get past level three in my computer game. Or perhaps when he was told, George, someday you'll be king, he thought to himself, that's good, but before I'm king, how do I stop Princess Charlotte from raiding my camp in the woods? George, someday you'll be king. Well, that's good, Daddy, but can you tell Mummy to change her mind and give me some chocolate cake, even though I jumped in a puddle and splashed Prince Louis after she told me not to? <laughs> Small boys find it hard to connect macro information about themselves and their future with the micro hopes and desires of the present. And it's not just small boys who find that difficult. Grown-ups do too. Today's passage is filled with astonishing information about what God has done for his people. It's as if God sits us down to tell us great things about ourselves. But that macro information can easily be crowded out by the micro desires and hopes and troubles in our lives. As you heard the passage, you may have found yourself thinking, this is good, but how does it help me with my office presentation on Tuesday that I don't feel prepared for? Or this is good, but what I want is for my date last night to respond positively to the text I sent. Well, this is good, but my roommate just told me she's moving out and I don't know how to cover the rent until I find a new roommate. Those reactions are understandable. It's right for us to care about our micro hopes, desires, and problems and give them our attention. But just as Prince George needed to hear that he would be king, despite the difficulties of absorbing such grand information, in the same way we need to hear what God has done for us. We need to hear who we are as Christians, even if it's too much and too big for us to take on board fully at one time. Just as the information given to Prince George will slowly, gradually seep into his worldview and change him. 
So the information in this passage should change the way we think about ourselves and our future as we meditate on it and increasingly take it to heart. One way to analyse a, a Bible passage like this is to look for any repetition. Repetition is a way of signalling the things that are most important. If you're staying in someone's apartment for a week and they tell you three times to water all the their plants, please, that repetition signals that plant watering is the one instruction they especially want you to pay attention to. Repetition signals importance. And in today's passage, there are three different themes that get repeated. We'll look at each one in turn. The first repeated theme is the will of God. There it is in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. There it is again at the end of verse 5. According to the purpose of his will. In verse 9, Paul talks about God making known to us the mystery of his will. And there it is once again at the end of verse 11. According to the counsel of his will. The will of God. His will. His will. His will. Four times in total. Paul wants his readers to see that the creator of the universe has plans. He has desires that he is determined to put into effect. God is the very opposite of an unmotivated slacker who only ever does things on the spur of the moment. Verse 11 goes so far as to say that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Another translation puts it like this. God works out everything in keeping with the purpose of his will. God works out everything in keeping with the purpose of his will. Everything. Every single atom collision in the universe is in keeping with the purpose of his will. Every single atom collision in the universe happens because God wants it to happen. One big question that immediately springs to mind in response is why then God includes suffering in his will? Because if every atom collision must only happens if God wants it to happen, that must mean God deliberately permits cancer and car wrecks in his world. Why would he do that? To answer that question, we have to hold two truths together that might look as if they can't be held together, but they can. The first is that God doesn't want suffering in his world. We know he doesn't want it because suffering wasn't in the world when the world began. It wasn't in God's creation in its originally created state. And God warned the first humans not to eat from the forbidden tree, warning them that they would suffer if they did. He made his will clear, don't eat, you'll suffer if you do. We also know God doesn't want suffering in his world because in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, 
there will be no suffering. Every tear will be wiped away. And yet, it's also biblical to say that temporarily, for the moment, God does want suffering in his world. God works out everything in keeping with the purpose of his will. We have to go where that statement takes us. And in the Bible, we find examples of suffering advancing God's good purposes. Think of Joseph, for instance, his enslavement and imprisonment. That suffering led to good outcomes. Those examples in the Bible of suffering advancing God's good purposes should give us confidence that God can be trusted even when we can't see the good in our own suffering or the suffering of someone close to us. It's been said that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And the person who said that was Johnny Erickson Tarder, a lady who's been a quadriplegic for more than 50 years. So we need to hold both truths together. God doesn't want suffering in his world, not eternally. But he does want suffering in his world temporarily because it has a necessary part to play in his master plan. There's another big question that springs to mind in response to what God says about, in response to what Paul says about God's will. If God works out everything in keeping with the purpose of his will, how then can we be responsible for our own actions? We all have a strong sense that we're the ones making the choices that define our lives. But are we right to have that strong sense of our own agency? Once again, we have to hold two truths together that, to begin with, look as if they can't be held together. The first truth is God's sovereignty and the second truth is human responsibility. What holds them together is that God oversees our desires. Our hearts are not beyond his reach. Our desires and decisions truly belong to us. That's why we feel so awful when we've done something wrong. We know we're responsible. But God oversees those desires and decisions and he makes them what he wants them to be. Everything in the universe happens under the dome of God's sovereign control. Even the thoughts of our hearts, as it says in Proverbs 21 verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse, wherever he pleases. God's sovereignty and human responsibility coexist because our hearts are in God's hand. Twice in this passage, Paul uses a word that follows on unavoidably from everything we've been thinking about in the last minute or two. The word is predestined. And it's there in verse 5 and also in verse 11. In the context of the passage, predestined means predestined for salvation. Paul's talking about God preordaining people to be saved. 
when we set our alarm clocks to go off at a certain time in the morning, you could say we predestined them to go off at that time. And God similarly sets people to receive his salvation. Now this is not an easy Christian doctrine. But as I've said, it follows on unavoidably from what we've just been thinking about. We've seen that God has both power and a plan. He works out everything in keeping with the purpose of his will. If he had a, a plan but no power, well, he wouldn't be able to predestine people to receive his salvation. And if God had power but no plan, there would similarly be no predestining, no setting in advance. But since God has both power and a plan, predestination is unavoidable. If the word predestined hadn't been in this passage, we'd have had to invent it ourselves. Predestination isn't an easy doctrine. But the more you live with it, the more valuable and precious it becomes. The 39 Articles of Religion were drawn up by Anglicans in the 16th century, and one of them deals with this subject of predestination. It says, The godly consideration of predestination is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. The godly consideration of predestination is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. So we don't have to treat predestination like a tripwire that will plunge us into endless philosophical speculation. Instead, God's people should treat it more like a pillow on which we can lay down our heads in peace. follows on from his power. It follows on from his plan. Let's press on to the next repetition in the passage, the next repeated theme. This one is hard to miss. Verse 1, in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in him. Verse 6, in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him. Verse 9, in Christ. Verse 10, in Him. Verse 11, in Him. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in Him. And then again in verse 13, in Him. In one way or another, Paul talks about being in Christ 11 times, and in the original language there's actually an extra in him that didn't get translated in our English version, which brings the total up to 12. If someone told you 12 times to water their plants while you were staying in their apartment, you'd get the message, wouldn't you? That's how it is with Paul. He really wants us to get the message that the spiritual blessings we receive are received in Christ. Union with Christ is the decisive factor 
God pours his spiritual blessings into the lives of those people who are united to Christ, associated with him, in him. Betsy called me into the sitting room yesterday to watch the end of the Alabama-Texas college football game. She thought I'd find it exciting, and she was right. The whole game hinged on a field goal attempt in the closing seconds. A field goal is obviously kicked by just one player. All eyes were on Alabama's kicker, and he guided the ball successfully through the post's roll-tide roll. Thank you. Victory came through that one player. His teammates were winners because of what that one player did. And all the Obama, Alabama fans there in Texas, back home in Alabama, or even here in New York City, were winners because of our association with that one kicker. Everyone associated with him enjoyed the blessings of his achievement. It's like that with Jesus. Everyone associated with him enjoys the blessings of his achievement. You can see his core achievement in verse 7, which says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's the core achievement on which all the blessings in this passage depend. Take away the death of Jesus on the cross, the blood he shed there, and all the blessings in this passage would collapse into nothingness. His blood achieved forgiveness for those united to him because it was punished blood. As he died on the cross, he wasn't paying the price for his own sins. He was innocent. He was paying the price for the sins of others. And just before he breathed his last, he cried out, it is finished, because the punishing of those sins was complete. Alabama's football team and fans rejoiced to see the football successfully kick through the posts at the end of yesterday's game. How much more, how much more should God's people rejoice day after day and for eternity in the forgiveness achieved for us at the cross. Well, can I ask at this point, have you entered into union with Jesus? Have you associated yourself with him? We do that through faith, through trusting in him as we hear about who he is, the son of God, and what he's done, dying for us and rising from the dead. If you're not a Christian and uh, you're here today or you're listening online, thank you for listening. You may think this just isn't for you. You may think that you yourself could never be associated with Jesus Christ. But he himself wants you to unite yourself to him. He himself invites you to associate yourself with him forever. When Jesus was here on earth, he said to the crowds, to everyone in the crowds, he said, come to me. He gave an open invitation. And he also said these very reassuring words, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That invitation 
is still open today. It won't be open forever. Verse 10 speaks of the fullness of time, when all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Christ. The only way to take part in that future world is to unite yourself to Christ in this world. Please accept Jesus' open invitation if you haven't already. Come to him. He'll greet you with full and lasting forgiveness. He'll also greet you with expectations. Verse 4 says that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the way of life. His people are committed to living with his help. We all fall short, which is why we confess our sins every Sunday as we did earlier in today's service. But that is the way of life we sign up for in Jesus, and it's a good way of life. It's how life in this world was always meant to be lived, holy and blameless. Come to me, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Paul wants those of us who have already come to Jesus to recognize that all our spiritual blessings are received in Christ through association with him. That's the reason for the dozen repetitions of the in Christ theme. But Paul does also want us to tune in to the particular blessings that he itemizes in this passage. And so in a moment, I'll go through them with a brief word of explanation for each of them. Now, as I said at the start of the sermon, we won't be able to take all of them fully to heart right away. There's just too much to process. But we need to hear these blessings, just as Prince George needed to hear that one day he would be king. That information defines Prince George and these Blessings similarly define who we are in Christ. We need to know who we are. We need to know what God has done for us and given us in Christ. To change the illustration, listening to these blessings will feel like taking a cup to a waterfall. It can be hard to fill a cup at a waterfall. That is a good problem to have if you're thirsty and you've been searching for water all your life. So let's rejoice as we listen and try to catch as much as we can in our cups in terms of processing what we're hearing, knowing that this waterfall of blessings will always be here in Ephesians chapter 1 and we can come back to it with our cups anytime. First blessing, verse 4, we've been chosen chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was wonderfully good for Israel to be chosen by God out of all the other nations, as we heard earlier in our Old Testament Bible reading. And as that Bible reading from Deuteronomy 10 made clear, Israel didn't deserve to be chosen by God. Similarly, we don't deserve to be chosen. But it's good to be chosen. It's not something to be embarrassed about or to feel uncomfortable about. It's something to feel astonished, gratitude for. We've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
Second blessing, verses 4, 5, and 6, we've been lovingly predestined for adoption by God as his sons. Please don't be put off if you're a woman by that word sons. In the Roman Empire, only males were adopted. So when Paul speaks about adoption to explain what God does for his male and female people, Paul has to speak about being adopted as sons. That was the only kind of adoption happening at that time. Paul's saying that through Jesus, God brings his people, whether male or female, into God's own family. There's a sense in which we have the same family privileges as Jesus himself, the beloved, as he's called at the end of verse 6. Think about what that means for your access to God, your access to his loving affection. We've been adopted into God's family. Third blessing, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. That word grace tells us forgiveness is a gift. It's not earned, it's received. I think of a Christmas several years ago when my nephew Theo was, I think, three or four years old. Every present he received, he took to my sister, his mother, and said with eyes wide open in wonder, look, mummy. He was so pleased to receive each gift. That's the kind of ballpark we're in as we read about the forgiveness of our trespasses in verses 7 and 8. What a gift to receive. Look at that gift. All our sins pardoned, forgiven, taken away. The fourth blessing set out by Paul is in verses 9 and 10, where he speaks about the mystery of God's will being made known to us. This is the blessing of revelation. What? is it that's been made known? What has been revealed? Verse 10, the future uniting of all things in Christ. That means nothing in the world to come will be opposed to Christ. How precious that promise must be to people living in lands where many people are fiercely opposed to Christ. Nothing in the world to come will be opposed to him. What a contrast there is between this world with its bitter divisions and oppositions and the world to come with its perfect unity in Christ. Fifth blessing, verse 11, we've been granted an inheritance. That's something that goes with the earlier blessing of being adopted into God's family. It's family members who share in the inheritance. If you've ever received a spam email promising you $10 million left to you by an uncle you'd never previously heard of. If only you'll click on this link and enter all your bank details and your social security number and date of birth and address and credit card number with the three digits on the back of the credit card. Well, if you're anything like me, just before you delete that email, and you must delete that email, 
you're anything like me, just before you delete it, you wish it was true. Verse 11 is like one of those emails, except it's true, every word of it. For those who are in Christ, in him we have obtained an inheritance. The last blessing Paul mentions is in verses 13 and 14, the sealing of the Spirit. God has not left his people dependent on our own resources, on our own meager strength. He's given in his Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to dwell within us, preserving us, keeping us in Christ until we obtain the eternal inheritance we've just been thinking about. Well, it's time for us to move on to the last of the three repeated themes in the passage. The first was God's will, his intentional activity, as he works out everything in keeping with his purposes. The second repeated theme was the in him theme. All those blessings are received through our union with Christ. And the third repeated theme, which we'll look at much more briefly than the other two, is the goal expressed at the start of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's repeated at the end of verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And at the end of verse 14, the end of the passage, to the praise of his glory. God's goal is his own glory because he is glorious. Everything we've been thinking about today reveals his glory, especially the self-offering of God on the cross in the person of his Son. God wants us to give him glory, to praise him, because he knows how easily we give glory to other things, things that he himself has made. We honour them set them up on a pedestal instead of him. When we honour created things instead of the creator, we're like a pilot flying towards the wrong location, causing trouble for ourselves and our passengers, the people in our lives. It's only when the goal is God's glory that everything falls into its proper place because he is God, the creator and giver of all things. Well, there's one word in today's passage that brings together those three repeated themes. And that word is love, found there at the end of verse 4, in love. Love unites all three of the repeated themes. God's will is loving. This plan he's putting into effect is a loving plan. He sent Christ, his beloved, into the world for our sake, out of love for us, so that we could be saved. We have all these blessings in Christ because God lovingly gave us Christ. And that final repeated theme, to the praise of his glory, that's loving too, because it's only when we're living to the glory of God that everything falls into its proper place for us. We need to have God's glory as our goal because otherwise we'll have another goal that is inappropriate, that takes us and our passengers 
in the wrong direction. Love unites all three of the repeated themes. I'm told by those who know Greek much better than I do that from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is one sentence in the original language. It is a waterfall. It is a cascade of blessings. And it will always be there for us here in Ephesians chapter 1 for us to return to and wonder at. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so good to be able to associate ourselves with Jesus forever. We're so glad to be in him through faith, to be united to him. We are so grateful to you for giving him, your beloved, to us by sending him into this world to his death on the cross. Thank you for his willingness to pay the punishment price that we might receive that core gift of forgiveness without which we couldn't have any of these other blessings. We praise you for him. We praise you for your glorious grace. Amen.